Welcome to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by Community Radio WERU and Mabel Wadsworth Center, a feminist, client-centered, sexual and reproductive health care provider in Bangor, Maine. I'm your host, Abby Strout. On each show, we speak with local experts to explore issues that impact our sexual and reproductive health. Topics include, but aren't limited to, reproductive rights, access to health care, feminism, LGBTQ rights, and women's sexuality. We wrap up each show with our Ask Mabel segment, where we answer your sexual and reproductive health questions. For more information on Mabel Wadsworth Center or to listen to past episodes, visit MabelWadsworth.org. You can also find Reproductive Left on WERU.org in the archives, on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for tuning in. Good afternoon. On today's show, I have the opportunity to interview Regina Rooney, the Education and Communications Director at the Maine Coalition to End Domestic Violence. We discuss domestic violence and the different ways her organization reaches out to communities. Be sure to listen to the end where we wrap up our episode with our Ask Mabel segment. Today, we will hear from a local woman who uses fertility awareness as her primary form of birth control. Hi, Regina. Welcome to Reproductive Left. Hey, Abby. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Thank you for being here. Um, We're going to start at the beginning by having you just tell our listeners about the main coalition to end domestic violence. Sure. Uh, So MCEDV is the organization that exists to coordinate the efforts of our nine members throughout the state. And so folks probably are familiar with their local domestic violence resource center. I'm guessing if this is WERU, we have a lot of people down east, and so you have Next Step Domestic Violence Project down there. Um, Penobscot and Piscataquis County is Partners for Peace. Uh, the Mid Coast area, including Waldo and Knox counties, is New Hope for Women. And so there are organizations like that all across the state. We have nine members. Together they form a network that provides supportive services to all individuals impacted by domestic abuse and violence and also works in their local communities to coordinate the response to abuse. So provides training, community education, awareness efforts, um, school-based prevention education, and a whole lot of just working to make those communities understand and better respond to domestic abuse. My understanding is that one of these organizations is one of the oldest in the country. Can you give us a little bit of a history of the domestic violence shelters and these organizations in the state of Maine? Yeah, sure. Um, The first domestic violence organization in the state of Maine opened in 1973, and it was called Spruce Run. It opened in the Bangor area. And then throughout the 70s, more organizations sprouted up across the state. And those organizations, um, many of them, at least Spruce Run, were different than what was happening in a lot of the country at that time. A lot of the country at the time was opening, uh, were opening shelters for battered women and their children. And Spruce Run, at least, started as a hotline. Um, the shelter came later. And so, but in any case, across the state, these organizations started cropping up, designed to fit the needs of their local communities. They are really um, independent, nonprofit organizations nested in their local areas, right? 
And then um, in the late 70s, they started to really reckon with the need for coordination of an overall statewide response. There was a desire to have some body that could speak um, in the legislature. At the time, there was no federal or state funding supporting the work of these organizations. They were being funded all through uh, grassroots efforts, bake sales and fundraisers and things like that. And so there was a desire to try to really do some, uh, some concerted lobbying work to, to change that. And that's really where the coalition, where I work for, was born out of that desire to have an overall coordinating voice. I'm going to switch to just kind of getting some more information about domestic violence. Um, is this something that impacts people of different ages, or is there a primary group of people that it impacts? Yeah, domestic abuse and violence uh, impacts all people, for sure. People of all genders, people of all races, people of all um, faiths and ages. It's also true that some folks are um, disproportionately impacted, and so what we know are the majority of um, people experiencing abuse are women, the majority of people who are perpetrating abusive behaviors are men. Um, Abuse definitely happens in the LGBTQ community as well. Um, And folks in some of those groups, bisexuals, for example, actually, if you look at the rates, um, there are higher rates of um, abuse perpetrated against bisexual individuals. Trans people face higher rates of um, intimate partner violence and frankly, higher rates of violence overall than the general population. And so I think what we have learned to do is, for a long time, I think there was this this message out there that was like only a certain kind of person gets abused, right? So then there was this really big effort to say, no, this can happen to anyone. And that is really true. It really, really is true. But I also think we're now in a space of going, it can happen to anyone, and some folks are disproportionately impacted, and we need to pay attention to both of those realities. Speaking on how it impacts different people, how might it look different? So we'll just talk about a specific group. How might domestic abuse or violence look different in a teenage relationship versus an adult relationship? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. You know, 1.5 million teens in the U.S., will be physically hurt by their partner, um, their dating partner, in a year. And so we know that this is happening for young people, right? I think some of the ways that it's the same is it really is still, we're, we're really looking at patterns of um, seeking to control your partner, right, uh, one's partner. We're really looking at that pattern of purposeful behavior, not sort of an isolated incident of um, violence that may or may not ever be replicated. And those patterns of behaviors often are not physical. And so that 1.5 million number really is about physical violence. And what we know is a lot of what happens to people um, is not physical abuse, right? So those are things that are really kind of universal across age groups. But when I think about young people's relationships in particular and what might set them apart, I think about the fact that those relationships are being um, carried out in the context of school, right? So young people have 
less sort of freedom and autonomy than an adult does, generally speaking, right? They're probably still living at home or with a guardian of some sort. They probably have more structure in their day where they're expected to be at school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a different kind of community context surrounding that abuse. Um, We also know that uh, technology plays a huge role for young people in the way they grow and maintain their relationships, whether those relationships um, are healthy ones or not, and that a lot of young young people who are using abusive behaviors are doing are engaging in those abusive behaviors using technology. Now, I want to say this with a huge caveat because there's a lot out there about teens and sexting, teens and, you know, sending intimate images, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Teens are not the only ones doing that, y'all. Like a lot of people are doing that. We need to normalize this. People in their 50s and 60s are sending those same kind of images, right? But teens get this kind of bad reputation for doing that. And we go, oh, teens are doing this thing and it's really naughty. And in fact, it's a thing that a lot of adults, grown grown consenting adults are doing as well. And so I think we need to be careful to... Um, sort of check our assumptions about what are what's happening in young people's relationships and actually listen to what young people are telling us about that. What kind of outreach does, do you or your um, coalition members do mm-hmm. to young people and does it look a little bit different than the, the way you outreach to adults? Yeah, all of our members work extensively with local schools and other youth-focused settings in their communities. And so that really varies depending on what part of the state you're in. But I know uh, that some of the examples of other settings other than schools where people are, people are in like job cores, they're reaching out in youth detention facilities, they're doing work at youth homeless shelters, at local libraries. So folks are really trying to reach young people in their communities where they're at. And we go in with this prevention education kind of a message. So there's going to be some sort of curriculum or programming that we're offering as an educational opportunity. But inevitably what happens then is that students um, end up coming forward to disclose their own experiences, to look for help for a friend. And so those kinds of prevention education initiatives are one of the biggest ways that we also do outreach to young people because those folks who are in the school year after year really get known as that person I can talk to about this. I'm going to ask you sort of the same questions, but um, around providing services to the LGBT community. You Mm -hmm. mentioned before that domestic abuse and violence happens in all variety of people to, can happen to any of us and that some people in that umbrella are actually more impacted they're one of the higher risk populations what kind of support do you offer and actually if you don't mind also maybe talking a little bit about how it might look different in those mm. relationships yeah. than in heterosexual sure. relationships that we're so, so often hear about yeah i'll start with the second part of the question um i think Again, the commonalities really are around those patterns of power and control. And I I always say that abusive people will use whatever opportunities they have to try to 
control, manipulate, coerce their partners. And so whatever tools they have within their home, but also within the greater community. And I think that's really relevant when we think about LGBTQ folks, because what we hear from LGBTQ survivors is that uh, aspects of their identity are used against them by their partner. So perhaps they're a trans person and uh, their partner accuses them of not physically representing the, their gender identity, quote unquote, well enough, right? Or really uses um, stereotypes that exist out there in our culture that are really, really harmful. They use those harmful stereotypes against their partners to frighten them, to convince them that no one will believe them if they reach out to help, to convince them they're isolated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that is one thing that differs. I think another thing that's important to note is that LGBTQ people who are in fear or who are worried about their partner's behavior have a different context when they're thinking about whether they reach out for help or not, right? So again, um, I think that we have done a whole lot of work with law enforcement, for example, over the last 40 years in this movement to to improve the way that they respond to survivors who are calling them and saying, oh my gosh, this is an emergency, I need help right now. But when you think about, for example, a trans person, perhaps especially a trans person of color, we can't assume that that choice to pick up the phone and call police for help is the same, right? Or maybe somebody's partner is, um, is, is trans and they like what happens if they're arrested, right? Do they go to a facility that where, um, where they're going to be housed with other people according to their gender identity? or to, and, and what kind of violence might meet them when they're in that facility? So those, the bigger oppressive structures that still exist in our society are really, really, really affecting survivors of domestic abuse and violence across the board, but I think particularly LGBTQ survivors in a variety of ways. Um, at our member centers, they provide services to people of all gender identities and regardless of the gender makeup of, of, someone's, um, of someone's relationship. I think we have really been trying to work hard, I think because so many, perhaps this is my theory, because so many of the mothers of this movement, of the domestic violence movement, were lesbians themselves, I think sometimes maybe we, um, I think that we felt like we had that figured out, maybe. This is, again, my theory. We had this idea that everyone would know that we were open, that we were inclusive. And I think what we have really learned is we may be those things, but we need to be more purposeful about reaching out and making that visible. And we also need to make sure that we really are educated about things like um, pronoun use. And uh, we need to make sure that we're really prepared to serve people in culturally competent ways. When you were just speaking about the issue on whether or not to call the police for support, it brought up another community um, for me, which is undocumented immigrants, because I would think the same thing would go across their mind on whether or not they can reach out, both for the, the safety of 
their partner that they might be concerned about, but their own safety as well on being deported, especially in the current climate. Is that a population that you work with? Um, and is there targeted outreach? And how might that look different? The National Network to End Domestic Violence and some other national partners actually did a study in 2017 looking at the impact of increased immigration enforcement efforts on on survivors who are trying to access services. So they did this big study across the country. And what they found was really astonishing. And I don't have all the numbers right in my head, but um, a huge number is something around 70% of the folks who responded um, were saying, yes, the survivors they work with are worried about what will happen if they call the police. They're worried about what will happen if they seek help through the courts. So think about, in the case of domestic abuse and violence, many people jump in their brains to, well, go down and get a protective order, right? These are folks who are saying, ah, but what's going to happen if I do that? 43% of the the um, respondents to that survey said that they had worked with immigrant survivors who had completely dropped civil or criminal cases because they were too afraid of continuing their involvement with the justice systems. Because basically, they were more afraid of the systems that we have set up that are supposed to be there to help people than, than they were of what would happen to them from their partner's abuse. That's a huge problem. That is a huge problem. And I'm really excited that the newest member of our coalition is Immigrant Resource Center of Maine, who is based in uh, Lewiston, Auburn, and also Portland. But they serve a wide number of communities in Maine where new Mainer communities are. And um, our partnership with them has been longstanding, but they officially became members of Maine main coalition to end domestic violence last summer, which is a huge, exciting thing for us. Um, and I will say that in our conversations with staff at that center, the findings from that national study are very much what's happening for the folks that they serve. I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk about really the one of the places where our work at Mabel Wadsworth Center intersects the work of um, domestic violence prevention organizations, and that's around reproductive coercion. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and what it looks like in relationships? Absolutely. Um, Reproductive coercion, if you remember a few minutes ago, I was saying that abusive people will kind of look for and use any tools that they have that they can find to get that power and control over their partner. Reproductive coercion is when those controlling tactics really focus on the survivor's reproductive health as a nexus of control. So we often see this in a heterosexual relationship with cisgender people in which, for example, it's pregnancy coercion, right? So maybe there's some sort of um, poking holes in condoms or flushing pills or hiding pills down the toilet, tampering with birth control so that someone gets Um, so that the survivor becomes pregnant. And let me tell you, once there is a child, you are very, very bound to somebody, right? And and abusive people know that. The courts um, really do operate on the presumption that the best thing, generally, they, um, they start from a place of the best thing being both parents being in that child's life. And so what that looks like is an abusive person really can cement their connection through tricking their partner into becoming pregnant. Now, that is not the only way it looks. It can also work the reverse, right? Um, 
maybe they really kind of pressure their partner into having an abortion. And then after the abortion, after the procedure is done, they will threaten to tell the survivor's family who's deeply, who's deeply conservative and would not be supportive. They're going to hold that, they hold that knowledge over that survivor. Right. Um, and they, they use the stigma and shame that exists in our culture about abortion. They can use that as, as a weapon against somebody. Right. It also it does. It's not always about pregnancy, though. It really can be STI related too. I mean, it's really people's reproductive and sexual health and this um, the ways that abusers can use that to continue to just wreak havoc. In someone's life. And I'm going to end with asking a question that I hear a lot when I talk about these issues. I'm sure you do too. And it's people who don't have as much of an understanding of the cycle of violence. But the question is just why, and I'm going to use it gendered a little bit, but why doesn't she just leave Mm -hmm. him? Just simply get out. Can you help folks understand why someone stays? Sure. It's a big question. We could talk about it for a long time. I, but I think there are a couple of key concepts, right? One, we assume when we ask that question that leaving fixes something, that leaving makes a difference. And I'm not saying that for some people that isn't true, but um, most of the time leaving actually may escalate the behavior. Most people who are killed are killed in the period as they try to leave or just soon after they've left, right? So it's a very dangerous time. And I really think we're giving very dangerous advice to folks when we encourage them to do that. We're also not recognizing the complexity of people's lives and the fact that survivors are weighing out a series of options constantly to keep themselves and if they have them, their children um, safe. And so leaving may not be the right option for a variety of reasons. Can you pay the bills? Are you going to be able to um, get to work? Are you going to be able to have a place to live if you end this relationship? My last two thoughts, I really could go on about this for a long time, Abby, if you may uh, be able to tell. I think that we need to grapple with the fact that some survivors just don't want to leave. What they want is for their partner to stop doing those things that are crappy and harmful, right? Um, They want their partner to be the person they are in all the good times and the person they were before the bad times started. And I think that that's a really realistic thing for somebody to hope, right? They want their partner to change that behavior. And so when we insist that somebody leave as the first option, um, we really are discounting the fact that this is a significant relationship for most people. This is a relationship born in many cases out of love, where love may still exist, right? It's not as simple as just up and walking out the door. And the last thought that I have about the question of why don't they just leave, which frankly, hopefully everyone who's listening to this will now say, well, we'll never ever ask that question again. We meant well, but we know now not to ask it, right? Is that even when we're well-meaning and we ask that, it is a form of victim blaming because what we're doing is placing the responsibility for stopping the abuse on the person who has no control over it. The only person that can stop that abuse is the person who's choosing to use abusive behaviors, right? The person who is actually choosing to do the thing, the actor, 
in the sentence. And so um, we need to really be aware of the fact that when we look to the victim to do whatever it is that we expect that victim to do to quote unquote fix the problem, we are barking up the wrong tree entirely. And we're in fact putting a whole lot of responsibility and blame on that victim that they do not deserve. It's the opposite of a supportive response. Regina, thank you so much for being on Reproductive Left. I would love to continue this conversation, but unfortunately that's all the time we have today. Thank you, Abby. I really appreciate you asking us to be here. Welcome to Ask Mabel, where we are listening to the true experts themselves, women who use birth control. On today's segment, we will hear from Terry. She currently uses birth control pills, but today she is talking about why she prefers fertility awareness. We didn't have time to get additional input from our nurse practitioners, and as you'll hear Terry say, this method isn't for everybody. But if you're interested in fertility awareness, be sure to schedule an appointment with your healthcare provider or at Mabel Wadsworth Center so you have all the information you need before you get started. Currently, I'm on the pill, um, specifically orthotricycline, which is a triphasic pill. So that's what I'm on right now. And switched from using only fertility awareness to this for a couple reasons. Because I had a bad experience with the pill when I was a teenager. And I thought, you know, maybe it's been long enough. Maybe, you know, using a triphasic over a monophasic will, you know, maybe that will be better for me. And, you know, just... At a weird transition point, like, you know, my husband and I are moving and he's going to be going for his master's. I'm deciding whether or not I want to go for my master's. So this would just be like the least ideal time to get pregnant. So it's just kind of having that like that 99% effective, like not going to happen right now method. So I've given the pill a couple months, and I'm probably going to switch back to fertility awareness just because um, it's definitely my preferred method uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, for one, it's free, which is really cool if you don't have health insurance, if you don't have, um, like, a way to access it, um, you know, if you're not – if you're just in a position where accessing birth control, even if it's at, like, a reduced rate or something, just isn't good for you um, – it's kind of nice to not have to think like, oh, did I get this refilled? Or like, you know, I've had things with my pharmacy before where they just called and they're like, hey, we ran a little hiccup, you know, we'll have that tomorrow instead of today. And that can like really throw you off. So I like not having to think about it that way. It's definitely the most in tuned I've ever been with, with my body. Um, because like, so there's, with the fertility awareness you can do, there's like the calendar method, like tracking your menstrual cycle, which is what most people think of. There's, um, like, checking your cervical mucus, um, so really getting, you know, comfortable with yourself. And then um, there's also, like, checking your temperature, and a lot of people do all three of them. I didn't really check my temperature. That, for me, was more of a, like, um, if we were using fertility awareness to get pregnant, I would definitely be checking my temperature. But between tracking my cycles and cervical mucus, I had a good idea of where I was. And to make it even easier, there's an app. The one that I use is called Clue. There's other ones too, but I really like Clue where you can um, you can just kind of put in the information that's pertinent to you. I mean, it's good for your sex life too in the way that like there are no hormones. Like a lot of people like on the pill, they have like a lower libido. 
you don't experience that on fertility awareness method and you just get really in tuned with your body like you get to the point where or at least I did where I would say um like I would think about how I was feeling I was like I feel like I'm fertile like I feel like I'm ovulating and stuff and I would pull it out like pull out my clue app and it would say like today is your most fertile day and then I feel like kind of like I won I'm like I knew it I totally could tell it's tricky because like so you're fertile and you're like okay so I'm like most likely to get pregnant and but obviously like your sex drive is at its highest so you're like I don't really want to abstain but you uh like so what a lot of people do is like condoms either like internal condoms or latex condoms I'm allergic to latex, so latex-free condoms. But, like, um, but knowing that you can either do that or, like, some people do, like, the withdrawal method. But for that, like, I would just use condoms. Like, just being, like, making sure that I'm using condoms during that fertile period of time. Thinking it was a good choice for us was being, like, if we got pregnant right now, it wouldn't be the end of the world. It wouldn't be, we wouldn't be upset. We would, it would be a stressful but still ultimately happy surprise. So it made sense that like we had but we had those conversations before I went off the pill we talked about like you know both of our thoughts about um you know what our plan is for during like fertile periods of time and what our plan like would be um like if an unintended pregnancy did happen it's definitely not for everybody because you kind of have to make a like you have to make a decision like I'm going to put in the time that it takes to do this. That's it for today. Thank you for listening to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by Mabel Wadsworth Center and Community Radio WERU. If you'd like to listen to past episodes, you can find them on WERU.org in the archives or at MabelWadsworth.org. You can also find us on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or through whatever podcast app you use. And please tune in next month, back to our original time slot, the first Tuesday of the month at 4.30 p.m., right here on Community Radio WERU, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming around the world at WERU.org.